What's going on, everybody? Welcome to Future Projection, a Baseball America podcast. This is episode 66. I'm Carlos Colazzo, joined by Ben Badler, as always. It's the 1st of November as we record this podcast, so right in the middle of the World Series. Uh, although I guess when you guys are listening to this, the World Series might or might not be over. Ben, how are you doing today? You make a, I'm doing good, Carlos. That's actually an interesting point. Do you think... So right now the Rangers are up 3-1 in the World Series mm. with Game 5 tonight. So by the time people are listening to this, either the Rangers will be World Series champions or the series will be 3-2 Rangers heading back to Texas for Game 6 on Friday night. We just yeah. don't know which one yet. What, what do you think? Do you think we should... I think we should record two different versions Mm. of the podcast mm. so yeah. one acting as if the rangers have won the world series yeah uh in it in five games we can talk about how they were the most complete team in baseball the true team efforts yeah uh players yep. stepping up in the absence of adolis garcia a testament to the culture of uh mm -hmm. bruce bochi and, mm -hmm. and chris young and, and what they've built in texas and then we record a second version where we talk about how the Diamondbacks are this resilient team, how people keep writing them off. Never quit, uh, yeah. Yeah, they keep proving the doubters wrong. They're Now they have the momentum going back into Texas. Uh, they're mm. a dangerous team. Uh, Adolis Garcia and Max Scherzer are out. Uh, don't discount the, the Diamondbacks. And then based <laughs> on the results, we, we nuke one and then go with the other mm. version. You know, I love this idea. Uh, it also probably makes this intro pointless because people are going to know our charade. We should we should probably just tape this uh, entirely over again, do three more intros, and then we can just tack on whatever intro suits us best depending on the outcome tonight. But I will note, if the Rangers win tonight, my World Series prediction that I just pulled out of nowhere with no thought uh, or analysis or conviction will be right. So I'll proudly champion that one if they do win tonight. They were your like your preseason pick, or when the world or when the playoffs started. You mean? Oh God, no! They were not my preseason pick. Oh, I, I mean, literally, the World Series was about to happen. And I said, "Hey, what is your prediction, Ben?" You said D-backs in seven, I think, and I said Rangers in five. And I only said that on this podcast because I had already said it on a podcast with Peter and felt I needed to have the same prediction. Oh, your pick. You're not even talking about your pick at the beginning of the playoffs. You're talking about your pick. Oh no, no, no! World it literally was our the the podcast we recorded just before the World Series kicked off on on this show. And I said, "Who do you think is going to win?" And it was maybe about thirty seconds that we gave to our predictions because I think neither of us care too much about that. But well, no, I think you, my maybe. I think my preseason pick was Braves over Blue Jays. So yeah, that one didn't really hold up too well. Yeah, I don't think the Astros. I think it was Astros over Padres, which is not okay at this point. Not looking so good. So I guess so. Yeah, no, that's tough. But I mean, what are your thoughts? We can talk a little bit about the World Series. I know we've got some other topics we want to get to that that aren't as timely. And uh, for those listeners, like the fact that we're recording this before um, Game Five tonight shouldn't matter for most of the episode. But do, any thoughts on the first few games we've had of this series? The first game I thought was awesome. Since then, it's it's not been as fun. <laughs> Couple yeah, blowouts. <laughs> yeah, when it's ten nothing after after a few innings, uh, after a few innings of a bullpen game, it's not the most yeah. entertaining product. But I mean, the I mean, truth like the Rangers are a very complete team. Mm -hmm. I think like, I was joking around earlier, but mm. um, it is impressive the 
the the quality of both the the pitching, the offense, and you know, especially at certain positions, the the defensive side as well. I think they're just a, a very well rounded team. Yeah, the offense has looked quite impressive. They've got a number of threats up and down the lineup. It's been fun to see Court Seager uh, go off. I think he's leading the series in home runs. He's got three home runs. Uh, really, every time Evan Carter steps to the plate, it's just really fun to watch him hit. Is he still riding his hitting streak that he's got or on-base streak? He has some pretty crazy under-21 playoff streak that's been impressive to just see unfold. But his I think everybody are... was on base for the Rangers the other night. <laughs> yeah, all kinds of streaks there. So, uh, no, that's been fun. I mean, Josh Young has been fun to watch it as well. That lineup is just tough. I mean, that's kind of the reason that I picked the Rangers is on paper. Their their lineup does seem better and deeper, and so far it's it's looked apart for them. I mean, I don't have any strong takes on the bullpen game. Uh, it seems like it wasn't like some galaxy brain strategy by the Diamondbacks. It's more of a case of, like, you just need to piece together – this game and get to the next one because you don't have maybe as many quality arms as, as you would like to have. Uh, but do you have any thoughts on the bullpen game, whether or not it's good or bad for baseball, whether or not you like it, if it was the right sh- strategic decision, um, anything on that? I think it's less enjoyable to watch as a fan, but from the team's perspective in terms of trying to win a game, mm. it makes sense. It's not like you have, you know, prime Pedro Martinez or Tim Lincecum in your starting rotation if you're the d-backs it it starts to thin out after the top of their rotation and then at a certain point if you're throwing four relievers out there and all four of them are are just getting bashed in by the opponent like there's only so far that strategy goes in that instance like your pitchers have to execute or at least like one of your pitchers (laughs) that you're throwing out for your first four pitchers um, have to go and get the opposing hitters out, and they they just didn't pitch well mm. at all from uh, many many different arms. Yeah, I don't really have any strong takes on that either way. So we can move on from playoff postseason talk. I'm sure uh, on our other podcast on the main Baseball America feed, Kyle has been covering the World Series in person. Him and Jeff have a podcast where they're breaking things down. So if you want more World Series content from us, I'd think those are good spaces for you to do it uh i believe kyle is at every game in arizona right so he should have content uh audio and written on the site for that um but today we're going to talk about uh some speed today ben it it has been fun i think to see the new rules uh in the game encouraging more base running encouraging more speed i think encouraging more athletes in general um one of the better base runners in the game is involved in this series in corbin carroll um, he tied for third in Major League Baseball, uh, first stolen bases. As just a rookie, it feels like the D-backs in general have been a solid base running team. I think like top 10-ish pretty safely in terms of overall base running value. I think they're pretty active in terms of stolen bases as well. I think they're top third in the league um, in terms of just team steals. Uh, but let's talk some speed today, like how we scout it, how much it's worth, um, how important it is. All, all kinds of speed talk. What are your thoughts on, I guess, do you want to start with the the game changing or player specific or kind of the scouting conversation around speed? Because I do think we haven't really spent a lot of time on this podcast about like scouting speed, but I feel like it could be interesting to talk through. 
Yeah, I think speed has certainly MLB is trying to make speed a bigger component of the game. Speed, athleticism, uh, stolen bases, even the shift limitations, putting some more emphasis on um, athleticism as opposed to putting players in the zone where you have a good sense of the probabilities of where the hitter is going to hit the ball. Um, but yeah, I, I think the it, it's one of the more exciting aspects of the game to watch. So I'm glad there's more of an emphasis on s- stolen bases yeah. this year and, and going forward. It just feels like there's more more action involved it's... on on every pitch when there's somebody on base. It's fun when someone gets on base and you know they're a stolen base threat and just the anticipation of waiting for them to make a move, knowing that it's coming. Uh, like even if the stolen base doesn't happen, I find myself more locked in just waiting for that to happen, like watching the sort of cat and mouse game between the pitcher, between the catcher, between the runner on base, like seeing runners who are just blazing fast and are going to steal almost regardless of what happens. It seem, there seem to be a number of players who are able to do that. And then the players who have these unique leads or setups or really aggressive leads, like just watching that in between pitches is fun. Uh, like every time Corbin Carroll gets on, it's just really fun to watch him uh, when you get kind of that closed side view or open side view, I guess, depending on who's on the mound with the runner in the background. It just adds a lot to the viewing experience for me. And I think like the ability to steal bases at a higher clip, the fact that steals are now a more viable offensive threat overall just adds a little bit more variety to the offensive game. And, and to your point earlier with some of the other rules with with banning shifts, like I think it's a good thing that we're encouraging athleticism in baseball because there are a ton of really exciting athletes and, and putting that athleticism on display as often as you, you really can through kind of fudging the rules and, and setting up styles of play, I think is really beneficial uh, because there are just some really special athletes and seeing them do athletic things on the field, whether that's defensively, whether that's on the bases, uh, I think is is massively popular. And I think that's why we saw a lot of increased eyeballs on, on just the product overall this year. Yeah. How do you, when when you're writing up a player, how do you how do you measure speed or how do you value speed? What are what are the things that you're looking at there? Yeah, it's an, it's an interesting question. I think the two, like in some ways, speed is more easy to evaluate than any of the other tools, just because there are a lot of objective, objective, excuse me, measurements um, that that you can have whatever level you're operating at. Like run times are fairly easy to get an objective number, even if you're going back on video and you want to hit the stopwatch a couple times, just kind of confirm. Uh, the number that you're getting, 60-yard times, uh, a lot of amateur events and showcases, players are running 60s. And for whatever reason in baseball, I think it actually might be interesting to like go back and look why baseball does the 60-yard dash as opposed to the 40-yard dash or like a 90-foot sprint since that's the base pass. But outside of that, like just having the objective numbers on 60-yard times and home-to-first times um, they give you two different gauges that, that should in general give you a decent idea of how fast a player is. I think it'll probably be interesting to talk through like where those times can maybe trick you. Um, like a, a player who has poor home to first times 
or maybe not poor, uh, since poor means like 20 on the scout scale, but below average home to first times might actually be a better runner than you think. And, and part of the reason the home to first time is not quite as good is just because the swing is a little bit long or he takes a little while to get underway and get to full speed. Whereas, uh, some players just get out of the box quicker, are able to get to full speed a little bit quicker. Um, so I think those two, those two are probably the first place I would go when I'm looking at amateur players. And then also just like just watching all these events we watch, the fast players want to run. They show you that they can run. So you can just see it in the way they move around the field. Like it's more visual than maybe some of the other tools uh, that you're scouting. Like it's more obvious. It jumps out at you really quickly. Um, but that's kind of the general overview of, of how I'm looking at it um, and like how I'm how I'm. I guess trying to get a gauge on how fast a runner is like 60 yard times home to first times and then just like literally just watching to see who, who runs well who runs quickly and who doesn't yeah i think in the absence of other available measurements home to first times are useful because uh, sometimes that might be all you get if you're watching a player at a quick glance in a in a non-showcase setting um i don't think i wouldn't say they're the best way to me to measure speed and i think they become less reliable the further you are from the major leagues especially at the amateur level because at the with, with professional players setting aside like dsl or high school draft picks in in the complex leagues you you're dealing with a player set that is accustomed to uh in, in the in the in the pro game getting out of the box quickly after they swing to run down the line so the home to first times you're getting there are, are going to be a better reflection of their true speed compared to young players who are either in high school or, or internationally where they don't always have that same level of uh game awareness at at that age um, it's funny you say that because i feel like the general the general uh stereotype is that big leaguers are always dogging it out of the box much more frequently on like routine ground outs but i do think you're right it's it's kind of crazy how much faster the big league game is on just your average home to first times at that level compared to the amateur ranks and maybe that should be self-evident because you're just culling a lot of non-athletes and non-professional players from from your sample like the worst times you're going to get in amateur baseball and like the lower levels are obviously going to be worse than the big leaguers there's only so, so there are only so many miguel cabreras who are running around in the big leagues but I, I think that is a good point to bring up yeah well i don't even mean in terms of like fast versus slow players i i mean it's, it's not uncommon to see players who are either in high school or uh, internationally who if they'll have 60 yard dash times that show 60 or even 70 speed mm. uh, and post home to first times that are more in line with a 40 Mm. or a 30 runner uh, and I'm, I'm talking about when they're running hard but maybe not necessarily running hard out of the box uh, and, and you know look sometimes also you're at a trainer's field <laughs> in mm. uh, the Dominican Republic and they're the ones marking off the 60 and it's actually a 58 yard dash so you're uh, you're getting tricked into thinking that seven flat runner is actually a mm. six seven runner that, that's not really what I'm talking about though i mean i mean you have players who take a big swing mm. put the ball in play and then just watch the ball before they start running I, I think especially in the like in the dr you see it where hitters are just used to taking a lot of live bp 
which is where they're either facing a pitcher who's trying to get them out, but it's not a game. Like there's nobody in the field. So they hit the ball and then they just walk off the field and watch the ball. They don't even have to run to first. So it's, it's not a matter of hustle or anything like that. It's just, it's a byproduct of training environment where when you start playing in real games, it's not that you don't have that automatic instinct sometimes to sprint hard to first base until you get more reps under your belt. Uh, but you see in the States too, with high school players where often the the home to first times are not consistent with their 60 times. And sometimes, yeah, it's just because a, a player is a better runner uh, underway in the 60 than they are in that shorter distance burst from home to first. But a lot of times just because they don't get out of the box quickly enough, they're, they're just watching the ball or the, the momentum uh, of their body is taking them in a way when they finish their swing so that uh, it, it impedes their ability to get down the line quickly. So y- you can see a below average home to first time uh, with a guy, you know, who's, who is running hard once he gets running uh, who might actually be a, you know, a plus or, or even better runner. Yeah. I don't know if this is the perfect example of that player, but I bring it up because it's a player I was talking about recently with Jeff Ponce. We were talking about, I think, just going over tool grades for a number of players in our updated top tens that we're working on. And Bryce Eldridge came up. And Eldridge is a player, I think, who actually does run surprisingly well underway, particularly for a player of his size, 6'7", 225 pounds or so. Uh, But he consistently has, I would say, well below average run times from home to first. I think part of that is how long his swing is and the fact that he is probably one of those players who just takes a little bit of time to get up to speed. Um, but Jeff was talking about how some of his measurables and athletic testing data was actually pretty impressive for him speed-wise. So maybe he's a player who just like when he's running around the outfield looks a little bit better uh, in terms of speed than than home to first. So that's an interesting one. Um, yeah, I, I think even with higher-level hitters, we're introducing a second variable into the equation uh, with home to first times that just adds noise into what we're trying to measure, which is the player speed. I mean, unless you're, uh, if you are trying to measure well, a home to first time, that's obviously something of value for the <laughs> infielder. I think the, I think home to first time is valuable because that puts pressure on infielders that can create hits and I also think that this is part of me just being on Team JJ when he's kind of talked about people using sprint speed on in situations in the game where home to first is the time you actually want to look at. Like close bang-bang plays where people will cite a, a sprint speed that a player had down the line. What, what you really want there is how quickly did he get from home to first? Because that, that's all that matters on that play specifically. Sure, in that specific but, situation. Yeah, but I take your point that like it is not the one metric that you can rely on when you're trying to just gauge gauge overall speed or run grade in general. But I, I think I probably, I'm probably, I think home to first times are more useful than it seems like you think they are, at least as we're talking about this, because like you're going to have more opportunities for your speed to impact the game on those home to first times than, I mean, depending on where you're at defensively. I, I just think it's a, 
it's a very applicable test for your speed in a real game situation that matters outside of like oh if he gets underway and can move around the outfield great like both both are meaningful i think it's just a matter of like not relying on one versus the other too much i but i think if what we're trying to measure is speed then it it just adds more noise like say what what grade of a runner this yeah. player is i think adding the swing component into it adds more noise and if you're just asking somebody to mm. run in a straight line i mean otherwise like if, yeah. if that's the best measurement of speed like i mean that maybe we should put that into the olympics like but also like it, i would say like yeah straight line speed is important but straight line speed versus applicable game speed like you want to be fast why because you want to beat out ground balls and turn them into hits and you want to be fast from point to point like if, if you're just fast in general in a straight line but for whatever reason you can never use that on the bases like is it as valuable i don't think so so i think it kind of goes both ways like adding the context like contextualizing how a player is able to use the speed in game matters but does that does a sorry like bryce eldridge for example mm. is probably a good example because bigger guys sometimes can have a harder time just getting started and getting going. Yeah. Um, it, it, and if you, if you have a big, a bigger swing or a bigger finish, whatever it is with the momentum of your swing that mm. uh, slows you down home to first, is that actually reflective of your speed in other aspects mm. of the game? Or if you know that the player is faster in other instances especially when we're talking about a, a young you know player who's maybe 17 18 years old yeah just because they're slower home to first which again like i see it all the time in young hitters their their home to first times get faster they don't the the without the player necessarily himself gaining any any raw foot speed they just get better and more efficient at i think getting out of the box or at stealing bases yeah, I think if it's if if that's the change that you're seeing, it's probably just a question of like instincts or aggression in the game or, or just realizing when you actually need to go. But there are certainly some players who, even if they're thinking to get out of the box as quickly as they can, just the how their body is set up, how their swing finishes just won't ever be as fast out of the box. But I don't think it's it's a negative to like value the home to first time. Like we write about it in the reports, right? Like it's probably similar to players that don't necessarily have the best bat to ball skills, but we think they're going to make a lot of really good swing decisions. And so they're still going to be a valuable offensive player. Like you could contextualize a runner and say underway, he is maybe an above average runner. And so that should give him a chance to be a solid defender in the outfield, give him a chance to play up the middle potentially. Uh, but that tool is going to play down uh, in home to first because either he's a slow accelerator or he has a long finish in his swing, something like, like, I don't think that you need to just put one number or the other and that boom, that's your like overall run grade. Like you could say his, his true speed might be a 55, but it just plays down in these scenarios for X reason. That's definitely... probably a better picture of the player's speed, right? Uh, there are definitely different types of runners too. Like there are players who, have that like long gliding easy stride uh, that you like to see in the outfield and then sometimes you see another runner who might have the same uh, or similar raw foot speed but is 
doing with a lot of like effort and kind of like herky jerkiness to it that it maybe makes you a little bit more hesitant about their um you know yeah. either either how their speed is going to hold up yeah long term or just how they're even going to be able to track balls sometimes in the outfield if everything is flying all sorts of different directions or 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 you may see it too as you know with the young players like an untapped potential potentially mm-hmm. where hey if we actually teach this guy <laughs> how to run in a more efficient movement pattern maybe there's even more untapped speed here. yeah but i think that's a I, th- I think that's a great and i'm curious what you think about projecting speed because i feel like the first few years i did it i, I didn't do it in the best way but the running stride and the mechanics of a stride i feel like is super important for projecting speed and i'm interested to hear you talk about like improving the mechanics of someone running because i i feel like that area i would be much more skeptical of changing the way someone runs to a significant degree and having that like positively positively impact them i would be more inclined to see like a projectable frame who has a really good athletic graceful stride and feeling more confident that the run tool could improve in the future as he has power and strength um, and that the just run tool in general will hold up well as that player ages versus like a very upright heel striking runner or a short choppy striding runner like those sorts of strides and running mechanics i might be a little bit more skeptical both in terms of like projecting improvement for let's say a teenager in their like mid early 20s and just like long-term projections of that run tool like there are a couple players i'm thinking of right now in our 24 class who just don't have very graceful or athletic strides and i'm curious what you think about like because i think about that almost more so than like a hitter hits how he hits and and someone throws how they throw like you really can't change that too much um i think a stride is similar but i'm curious if you feel like it's maybe a little bit more malleable not a believer basically in the entire like track and field sprint coaching no i like then i do and i think there are ways you can improve as a runner but i feel like it's more fine tuning than overhauling uh, i think and, and I'll, I'll be happy to be proven wrong here but i just feel like the, there are incremental gains you can get by perfecting form or learning how like putting some intentional focus into improving your stride and just improving how you run but i don't i don't think you can necessarily take a 40 grade runner who's an upright heel striker and take him to sprinting coach and he's going to turn into an above average runner overnight like i just i think there's marginal gains maybe you can make with that more so than overhauling entirely like a tool grade yeah i don't think you're gonna take uh some plotting runner and and suddenly transform him i think probably more about base dealing technique and Mm technique in that regard that can make a player a, a more efficient runner and a more efficient base dealer uh, more efficient base runner yeah but yeah I mean, it's, it's tough like I, th- I think when, when a player is still like 15 16 we still see speed increases at that age right like if if you go to a high school track yeah. meet probably you're or you just follow a, a high school sprinter throughout his high school years. Like he's probably going to be faster as a sophomore, faster as a junior, as a senior. That's yeah. a pretty typical 
progression for a sprinter in that age. So uh, we, we see it kind of go both ways, maybe starting at 16, 17, where you will have a six, seven runner, but maybe he's still, still pretty thin, not a lot of muscle yet, but does have that easy gliding stride, uh, you know, really quick twitch type athlete just lacks a lot of strength. And then when he does get stronger, you see the run tool get better. Other times, uh, you know, I, I think maybe you see a player who, let's say, you know, 6'3", 180 pounds, uh, same age, uh, but, you know, maybe wider hips, all that. That 6'7 runner, when he gets bigger, he's going to maybe grow sideways, and that 6'7 runner is going to, you know, be more of a average, fringe average runner as he fills out, as he get stronger. So I, I think by the time the player's 17 or, or even 18, it's really hard to project speed getting better. It's not impossible. Like I, I think Julio Rodriguez is one example of a player who's been able to uh, get faster and significantly outperform defensive expectations that a lot of people, myself included, had for him uh, when he was 16, 17 years old. But uh, like Fernando Tatis Jr., another player who got faster after mm. he was, you know, 16, turning 17. So it it happens, but it, it, I think it's more common player holds holds on, you know, holds at where he is or, mm. or slows down just as he gets bigger and, and puts on more weight. Yeah, I think another player who surprised me with how fast he is at the big league level compared to where he was as a 17, 18-year-old is Corbin Carroll. I mean, you would probably say he's an 80 runner at this point. I don't think we ever had that great on him out of high school, and I'm curious if we were just light on him out of high school. Like, we cite plus speed in his amateur draft report, and we do note, which I feel good about, that he had advanced feel for running the bases. Like, everything he did at the time was very polished, uh, but the tools are just a lot louder, I think, in a number of ways for Corbin Carroll than we expected at the time. So he would be a good example for me of a guy who just became faster. Um, he's also interesting to me in our conversation about players who get up to speed quickly uh, and, and how you think that is maybe important uh, versus instincts on the bases or just raw speed in general. Because if you look at the stolen base leaderboard, it's actually funny too. The stolen base leaderboard for 2023 is littered with 2019 uh, draft picks. It's Ronald Acuna first. Then you've got the next three: Corbin Carroll, Bobby Wood Jr., C.J. Abrams, uh, all 2019 high school picks. Bryson Stott checking in at number nine. So that 2019 class is is going to have a lot of fun statistical um, thresholds uh, as we move forward. I feel like it's such a good class, but. It is interesting to look at Acuna Jr., Carroll, Bobby Wood Jr., um, the big three. Ronald Acuna Jr. went 73 for 87 in stolen base attempts this year. That's an 83.4% rate. Uh, Bobby Wood Jr. went 49 for 64. That's a 76.6% rate. And then Corbin Carroll went 54 for 59, which is 91.5%. He attempted steals less often than Bobby Wood Jr. and wound up with more steals in total just because his efficiency was so good um and baseball savant has this really cool running splits leaderboard where you can look at in raw time 
and in percentile rankings, splits uh, of each player, like by feet, it starts with zero feet, five feet, 10 feet, and goes all the way up to 90 foot splits for sprint speed. And it's, it's fascinating to me, if you look at that leaderboard, I mean, the overall um, sprint speed leaderboard has Bobby Wood Jr. two overall, uh, Ellie De La Cruz is number one, and then Corbin Carroll is number seven overall. Both of these are players who their sprint speed on average is 30 seconds, uh, 30 feet per second, I should say. But if you look at the running splits tool, um, it's really cool because you see Corbin Carroll is basically fourth in the five foot split category. So within the first five feet of his sprint, his speed there is the 97th percentile. You have to go all the way down to the middle of the pack where you get both Bobby Witt Jr. and Ronald Acuna Jr. They have 97th percentile sprint speeds overall once you get underway, but Bobby Witt Jr. is only in the 44th percentile in that five-foot split, um, and Ronald Acuna Jr. is right in the same range. So I wonder how much you think like stolen base efficiency is just reliant on how quickly you can get up to speed, I guess acceleration versus speed here, versus instincts. Like if you had to pick one, for base runner, assuming you're getting plus plus speed, would you rather have elite base running instincts or would you rather have elite acceleration, like kind of that quick twitch, get to max speed as, as quick as you possibly can? I just I just want to know why no love for CJ Abrams going 47 <laughs> for 51 stealing bases. You know, I, I, guess I was just, just looking at the top three. CJ Abrams does, he gets up to speed quicker than Acuna Jr. and uh, Bobby Witt Jr. He's 87th percentile in the five foot split uh threshold so just, so pretty elite overall just a couple stolen bases shy of yeah he didn't meet the Bobby threshold Witcher. you know i i just looked at the top three you know it's nothing personal against cj abrams but no 47 for 51 is is pretty dang impressive we can lump him in this in, in this as well he's always been a burner i, I think cj abrams is gonna be like a seven-time all-star and then bobby, bobby wood jr is gonna end up in the hall of fame and you're gonna be like yeah but like i don't, I don't know he's a, he's a decent but not, he's no bobby wood jr oh yeah i need to i need to give cj abrams some love yeah well i, I mean I, yeah the, the components of being a good base dealer obviously speed is a huge factor um first step quickness that you're talking about um ability to to read pitchers your your base running your base stealing technique uh but yeah that that first step quickness i think bigger guys can sometimes take a little bit longer Hmm. to accelerate i've had and i think that's why ellie is such a freak because he's huge and he's in he's the very top of this five foot split in addition to like just top end speed he's at the top he he's right there with corbin carroll for five foot split which was shocking I, yeah, I guess every, it shouldn't be shocking because he's such Elliot a freak, but it, it, it shouldn't be possible to, for him to get that body moving that quickly as fast as he moves, but he does. It's it's insane. Yeah, I mean, I don't know how to, I don't know how to like measure it empirically, but at least anecdotally, it seems to have some general truth to it. When you look historically at the game's all-time best base dealers, you just don't see many guys who are... 6'4 or even 6'3 plus obviously Ellie is uh, a freak like you said one of the fastest players in baseball Julio Rodriguez Tatis you know they're both 6'3 bigger guys uh, who can run and steal bases Uh, and then obviously there's like a there's a selection bias in there too because a lot of there just aren't a a lot of players who are bigger guys just don't run uh, particularly 
well or, or can really fly. Uh, but I, even you think of some of the taller players who can run uh, in recent years, like a like take like a Hunter Pence or a Dexter Fowler, uh, Jake Marisnik, like even like Avisal Garcia when he was younger. Um, like they, they did steal some bases, but probably not as many as their raw speed might suggest. So yeah, definitely having that first step quickness is a, a significant component to being able to steal bases, but then also being able to understand the situation, being able to read pitchers. Freddie Freeman obviously is not fast, but he's clearly been able to pick things up over the course of his career that have made him a, a much more efficient and obviously this year too prolific. I'm sure the new rules help with that, but base dealer. So it they're, they're all, they all factor in. I think speed is the biggest component to it. It's just hard to steal a lot of bases if you're a, you know, a 30 or a 40 runner, but over time, yeah, having that, knowledge of when to run how to read pitchers uh, and that first step acceleration uh, is is so is important too yeah your your comment about player height was really interesting and so i I wanted to see like what the actual numbers look like so quick search there are 74 players uh, in baseball history who have stolen 400 or more bases in their career at six two or shorter how many players do you think meet that 400 stolen base threshold at 6'3 and taller? This is as baseball reference measures. So I'm sure on the margins there are some players that, that might cross over. Um, but it's pretty shocking, the numbers, and I think it intuitively does make sense, just given what we're talking about. How many 6'3 or taller players have stolen 400 or more bases? In their career, yep. 400 is a lot. It is a lot, but I was, I was surprised that so many just in general um in the six two and under split like i I would have taken the 70 i would have taken under 74 uh but i guess i also just wasn't alive when uh we had our golden era of stolen bases which is why i'm so excited that maybe it's coming back um with these new rule changes yeah i don't know 10 one the only one willie wilson two-time all-star i was gonna say a rod no, he, he is on this list, though. So Willie Wilson has 668 total. Uh, the next two are Derek Jeter at 358 and then A-Rod at 329. So he, he did steal a lot of bases, but not quite 400. And then your list, a lot, yeah. it, it's a ton. But I, I think it does speak to your point. Like <laughs> Ricky Henderson's in there with 1406. How tall was he? He, he tops the list, obviously, of our 6200. He was 510. So... Yeah, I guess there just is something too. moving, getting, getting long levers going. Uh, it takes a lot of force. And if you're just smaller, it's, it's a little bit easier to get up top speed quickly. And, and you need quick acceleration and just in addition to top speed, if you're going to be a prolific base dealer. So I guess, w- would you bet on, <laughs> would you bet on Ellie getting to 400 and, and adding another player to this truly elite category of six, three plus 400 stolen base heroes? I I don't want to bet against him. <laughs> you, I mean, you also have to have so much longevity. To, you do. Uh, you have to get on base in order to steal. You have to be healthy. You have to be good enough to be around for a long time. So, learn which pitches to not mm. swing at, which will be important for <laughs> Ellie De La Cruz. I hope he does figure it all out. Obviously, he's uh, 
ridiculous talent. Mm. How difficult do you think it is to evaluate good base runners outside of just fast runners? Because obviously you'd mentioned Freddie Freeman being an example of someone who has become a good base runner. What are you looking for when you're watching players on the bases to to feel confident that a player is going to add value or just be a savvy runner on the bases, even if he isn't one of these burner types like a C.J. Abrams or a Corbin Carroll? Well, how much, I guess, does it even matter to you? And does it does that answer change depending on what level of player yeah. that you're looking at? Yeah, now, that's a good question, too. I think it's it's kind of one of those smaller areas where if if they are it's kind of a nice little cherry on top and you factor it in and you can get a little bit more excited about the player and if they're not like if they're not a good base runner but you still have a lot of conviction in the hit and power like you probably are fine it's not going to change it too much but if you're getting to the point where maybe you have a tight cluster of players you're trying to separate a little bit um, maybe those added instincts and the little bit of value you can get from base running um, will make you lean one direction or another um, but I would say probably a marginal amount of value, like not, not a ton to, to move the needle significantly in the, the big scheme of things. But maybe that's also like if you have a good base runner, a very instinctual base runner, uh, I would imagine that those sort of instincts also carry over into other areas. Like, And maybe this isn't the case. Maybe we have some just base running specialists who who have just mastered the art of base running and that that doesn't necessarily mean they have good instincts in the box or in the field as defenders but i probably would tend to think that if you're a really advanced base runner your instincts in general are probably going to be above average and so i would i would be a little bit more confident maybe in that player getting the most of the natural tools they have um but i could be reading into that too much what do you think no i i think that's spot on especially at the amateur level like high school or international players in fact when i so i i I went you know when i go to the dominican republic i'll go around sometimes just to the different trainers fields all around the country and i'll see players there who are in their program and a lot of times it's not a game look you're just getting a getting them in a workout watching them take in and out, uh, take some BP. Maybe there'll be some live BP, but uh, you don't really get a sense for their game skills. Um, so sometimes I'll have the players just run run the bases and put them in like a just you know different situations. Run first to third, score from second on. Uh, you know, a, you know, a ground ball up the middle and you're just, you know, you're calling out the situations as it is just so you can see, just see how they run the bases, see their techniques, see how they cut around the bases. And like, you, you can definitely tell some very significant gaps in terms of whether it's, you know, there or, or watching games, the, the level of um, base running acumen or technique that, some players have who clearly have played in a lot of games and have very high level instincts for the game. And that's able to reveal itself uh, through those situations. And then other times you see a player rounding first base and like they're practically in the outfield <laughs> on the way to second base. 
Um, so I, I remember one time there was a, was at a trainer's field and, and there was a, a young player and, and the, they were, the, you know, the situation was to tag up from third base on a fly ball. And I'm trying to, it's like to left field and trying to describe, think how to describe it. He, he had, I think it was like his, his left foot on the bag and his back was to the outfielder and his head was like turned to the right side of his head, like craning around (laughs) trying to see what happened. And then he ran home and like, you know, his trainer slash coach to his credit saw it and was like pulling him aside and was like, hold on. Like, you know, he's, (laughs) he's a talented player, but I, I don't know that he's ever actually been in that situation uh, in a game before so like all right like good teaching moment to teach him the right technique on what to do in that situation but um, yeah whether it's there or in game situations where you know as as a scout like you know when you're seeing guys in in pro ball or, or evaluating from the draft you, you probably have a lot more time to make decisions whereas if you're a you know a college recruiter you might be making offers based on less information and if you see a player who has really sharp base base running instincts and technique you probably just have more confidence that his overall level of game acumen and instincts in other facets of the game are going to be there as well so it it can be a useful yeah shorthand for just overall baseball IQ I think yeah, no, that's an interesting way to think about it. I don't know that I've like ever consciously made that connection and like like used it like that, but it, I think it makes a lot of sense that there's a lot of carryover and you can you can read into just the various polish and overall instincts of a player from that. Um, I think there's I think there's a lot you can still like even if a player doesn't have good base running instincts at you know say 16, 17 years old when they're signing like all right, that's fine. Like, obviously you'd rather the player have it than not, but it's it's also something that can be teachable. Whereas if you have a college player who, let's say he's an 80 runner and like you look up at the stats at the end of the day and he's like, I don't know, 10 for 20 stealing bases or something like, okay, like this is obviously (laughs) a red flag. Like what's Mm. going on here? That's probably not going to be a big part of his game and not that stolen bases is a huge part of any or you know even fast players value like what's going to drive it is what you do in the batter's box and in the field more so than anything else Um, you know obviously like Corbin Carroll and (laughs) a handful of other players are exceptions where they can create so many runs with their legs but if if you see that, I mean, that, that would definitely be more of a, a red flag for me as far as expecting um, high stolen base totals for the player. Well, you know, whether you're a scout or obviously, you know, for, for fantasy baseball where it's such a bigger component yeah. of, of the game. Yeah, definitely does matter for fantasy probably more than real-life baseball. But I do like the fact that it is more meaningful for real-life baseball now than it was two years ago. Um, how do you view speed in terms we've talked a lot about base running how do you view speed in terms of defensive profiles and which positions um, it's valuable valuable at which positions it's maybe nice to have but not necessary like 
how important is speed uh, for making a good defender? And I imagine most of this conversation will revolve around up the middle types, shortstop, second base, center field. But just in general, I guess, how do you, how important is, is the footwork and the speed and the acceleration to a defensive grade of a player? Yeah, I think that's where speed is the biggest factor, more so than stolen bases, is the defensive value that it can drive for a player, uh, particularly for outfielders. I think speed is the primary driver of your defensive value as a, an outfielder, especially when it comes to whether you can play center field. I think it's just very difficult to play center field in the big leagues if you're even an average runner, uh, right. or certainly worse than that too. If you're, you're you're just competing with players who are at the same position, who are largely eighty and seventy runners, uh, or or sixty runners too. And if you're a forty-five, fifty runner, you would need to have absolutely phenomenal defensive instincts to yeah. play the position. And, and even then, you could probably still be outbeat by a 70 runner with just marginal fair instincts in route running. Just because the, the total range he has is just going to – he's going to be able to outrun his mistakes. There, there was one phrase that I heard a few weeks ago, maybe a few months ago. It was like athleticism gets you a seat at the table just in general with sports. But it, it feels like speed really gives you a seat at the table uh, for for outfield defense, center field defense specifically. Well, And, and even if you – even if you do have those phenomenal defensive instincts as a, mm. you know, 45 fringy type runner, like the guys who are playing center field in the major leagues every day are almost always going to have very sharp defensive instincts yeah. too. I mean, just think about every center fielder in the big leagues. Like there's very few guys who are just like just good runners who don't have good defensive instincts too you're mm. you, you'll see it through the minor leagues guys who are 70 runners who are not very good defensive outfielders yeah. and maybe even end up moving to and i think it, it does seem like speed at the top of the scale is just a more common tool than maybe a lot of other tools and so like you're not just going to find a bunch of 70 and 80 hitters who don't have roles in the big leagues like there are way more track stars in this world who just can't hit or can't field or can't throw or can't do any number of things that might be disqualifying for you. Uh, and so just the pool of players you're competing in, like the tool pool set there is is so much larger than just hitters in a lineup. Yeah, the, I think just the range is such a big factor hmm. too for outfielders as far as what drives your value. And by the time you get to the big leagues, most of these almost all the center fielders are going to have very good defensive instincts and they're going to be able to have the range that make those, the, you know, the speed uh, and, and, you know, the acceleration as well, but then just the raw closing speed too, to be able to make those value add plays on catches in the gaps or, or over your head where you're really having to sprint a good distance to make mm. those extra degree of difficulty plays that you're just not going to get to if, if you don't have that kind of foot speed. Yeah. How, how important do you think speed is for like a middle infielder, particularly now in this um, post-shift world that we're living in where presumably range is just automatically valued more? You need to cover more ground if you have less flexibility to position players um, to kind of cater towards hitting tendencies. Like, 
I view it as something that's nice to have, but I've also seen so many really good defensive shortstops who are not the fastest runners. And for whatever reason, like instincts and and short area quickness is better than pure speed for them. Maybe it's just like the ability to move laterally is there, but their just straight line running ability for whatever reason is not. Like I always use this example, but Anderson Simmons was never the, the fastest guy in the world, but but he had such great instincts, and I think his arm also gave him better range. Like he's just, you're just able to play deeper as a shortstop and artificially boost your, not artificially, you are you are boosting the range you have just because you can make plays uh, at, at places in the field, and you give yourself, uh, I guess, a little bit more cushion if you have an arm like an 80 grade arm like that to bail you out. But how do you view speed for middle infielders and and shortstops specifically? And Cal Ripken Jr. is one of the best defensive shortstops of all time. I don't know if people think of him that way. Just I don't. I don't really naturally know. Yeah, because he was so well known for the streak and for how great of a hitter he was as a shortstop, and just how dramatically different he was, uh, both physically and offensively at the time for a shortstop in terms of the numbers he was putting up and the power that he was hitting for, but he is up there uh, with the greatest defensive shortstops uh, in baseball history. And he was not a runner either. Uh, He never had 10 stolen base attempts in his career uh, in a season. Uh, His career high in stolen bases, I believe was six, Uh, not a lot of triples. I mean, you can see it in the stats. He he came up playing in the eighties too uh, early in his career, like throughout his 20s which is obviously a very high stolen base era uh, but that wasn't really part of his game because he was just not a not a great runner but he was an all-time great defender at shortstop he's obviously an outlier in many ways so it can be dangerous to take too much from outliers sometimes but I, I think he is probably the most prominent example of why you don't need to be a plus runner to be a good defensive shortstop or just to be good enough to play shortstop in the big leagues at the same time, like we, we do see a lot of shortstops who do run well. Yeah. I think the skills that allow you to be a good defender are oftentimes just correlated pretty strongly. Yeah, like speed. I think that, yeah. yeah, that first step bouncy quickness that is so useful to have at shortstop. Usually that comes with good, foot speed but with some players it's it's not um i but i think with infielders that yeah that first step quickness the internal clock hands footwork body control the ability to read hops there's so much more about that short area quickness that you were talking about that it is with sprinting ability in terms of driving your defensive value that comes with being an outfielder that just doesn't really come into play as much as an infielder. Yeah, I I view it similarly. I think it's interesting. Are are there any players that you think of when we're talking about speed who either their, their run tools stand out to you, you expect them to be really gaudy stolen base um, accumulators in the big leagues or, or just any specific players you want to dive into uh, who are current prospects uh, that you kind of want to bring into this conversation, or is there any more to say about just like scouting the tool and the philosophy of it and the, the like where it's useful, where it's maybe overrated? Well, if if you had to pick, I'm curious if your pick will be the same as mine. Mm. I think it might be. 
If you had to pick <laughs> one prospect in the game right now who would be a future stolen base champion hmm. or a stolen base leader in the big leagues, uh, well, I guess some of it maybe depends on like how much, if you think he's going to be good enough to play every day, but yeah. who, who would be your... Who would be your pick? So this is any any affiliated player who's currently in the minors. That's that's who we're picking from. Yeah, any yeah any prospect with you know who's yeah in affiliated ball right now. Unless I you think... have an indie ball player. Who's <laughs> sneaky. Let me let me hit up JJ and yeah. see who the fastest indie ball players are. There are a couple names that are interesting. Um, I think that the one that I'll go towards that I have the most confidence in, and maybe it's the most boring, but I'm still going to pick him anyways. Um, but but the player that I think could compete for stolen base championships or stolen base leaderboards, whatever we're calling it, I think has to be Enrique Bradfield Jr. That's my pick too, yeah. Yeah, and that makes it a little less boring, but he, he has, I think he has all of the best positive uh, traits that we've been talking about today. Um the top end speed is phenomenal. It seems like the acceleration is phenomenal. I'd be very curious to see where on that splits leaderboard he's going to fall into uh, if and when he does get to the big leagues and, and gets enough of a sample to register on that board. But he has pretty consistently been an 80-grade runner going back to his high school days. He has also always stood out for his instincts, both in the field as a defender. That's why he's got a chance to be an 80-grade center fielder. And on the bases, uh, I mean, just in his Vanderbilt career, he went 130 for 143 on the bases, um, stole 30-plus each year, 47 his first year, 46 his next year, 37 after that. Um, so he just has the pure speed, the instincts, and I think he's a first-rounder as well. Uh, I'll be curious to see what sort of offensive profile in general he turns out to be, but I think he's got enough hitting ability and he's got enough of a locked in really valuable defensive profile that that i would feel confident enough in him getting the ab's at the big league level to get on these leaderboards in general um and if you look at stolen bases on a plate appearance basis so like stolen bases per plate appearance in the minor leagues this year he had the best ratio uh of any player in the minor leagues he stole 25 bags and was caught twice in just 25 games uh, obviously, he wasn't in the minors long enough to crack the the top of the stolen base leaderboard overall. Like your your Victor Scotts and your Chandler Simpsons of the world, who had ninety five and ninety four stolen bases respectively. And I do think that as Enrique Bradfield advances uh, up the minors, like he's not going to have quite an extreme ratio of stolen bases per plate appearance. Victor Scott, for instance, his was fifteen point three percent. Chandler Simpson was eighteen point six percent. Enrique Bradfield's was 22%, basically 22, 23%. That should go down as he gets in a larger sample. Um, but it also wouldn't shock me if he's just constantly very high volume, very high efficiency. I mean, it's 90 plus percent stolen base success rate in college. It was 92% in his brief pro debut at rookie ball. And I guess he got a couple games in, in high A as well. So I just think he is that sort of... I wouldn't call him an, an outlier runner, but a definite 80 grade runner who has always shown just really advanced baseball instincts to get it done. So I think that's probably the, I don't know. It's not, maybe not the safest, but definitely the, the pick that I have the most conviction in. Yeah. hundred percent stealing his sophomore year at Vanderbilt too. I mean, if Asturi Ruiz as a rookie 
this year for the A's can lead the league with 67 stolen bases, I think. Enrique Bradfield is he's an even better runner. I think he's going to be an even more efficient base dealer. And he's going to be a much better defender, too, than Ruiz. Like overall, you know, obviously for fantasy, <laughs> the stolen bases give Ruiz quite a bit of value, but uh, in real life, it's a pretty empty bat and the defensive metrics on him were not great. So that really yeah. limits his real world utility. Hmm. Um, but what Bradfield gives and, and there's a chance, I, I think he has a better, better offensive approach than Ruiz, but there's still some risk that, yeah, like overall it could be just a, a below average, below average production at the plate. But his defense is so good. Like you talked about his his instincts on the bases, his instincts as a fielder are just as good. He he has that very springy first step. Uh, it's it's very efficient in terms of his his movements, his routes, and then it's well above average range too. So there's some uh, there's there's a lot of defensive value there too, assuming he's able yeah. to hit enough to play every day, which I have my concerns there. Hmm. Uh, but I, I think he'll probably get a shot to do it. And if he does this, he absolutely, I think has a, a chance to be a, a 70 plus stolen base guy, given yeah. the, the current rules. Like, I, I don't know that he's necessarily too different from like a CJ Abrams type, less power than CJ, maybe a little more on base ability than CJ. Like he could get to that sort of offensive value, uh, even if we're not looking at the the most opti- optimal offensive outcomes, like a guy who's going to play elite defense for you up the middle, maybe as a sub-league average hitter, but close enough to where you're going to live with it, just given the defense, um, and he's getting on base enough to steal at a high clip. Like C.J. Abrams over 151 games had a 30% on base rate, and he stole 47 bags. So if you're playing every day, that's a fairly low bar to clear for OBP. Um so I, I think I agree. Like he, he he should be able to get the plate appearances, and I think he has the skills to get on base enough to just. And again, he packages the the volume of stolen base attempts with the efficiency that you need to to get it done. So he feels like the safest. But who are some other potential candidates? Because I mean, Victor Scott and Chan- Chandler Simpson, who I mentioned, are maybe intriguing guys just because of the pure volume alone. And it, it's not like they weren't efficient with their stolen bases in the minors as well. Yeah, the one of the name that jumps out to me is Justin Crawford mm. with the Phillies. Uh, he was their first round pick in 2022. Had a really good debut this year. I think obviously the concern is there there are, there are a lot of balls hit on the ground, so you don't see much. Yeah, we didn't see much power this year. And then what is it going to be long term? I, I think there's more power in there. I'm optimistic or at least hopeful that he can make the adjustments to elevate the ball more. Not that I want him like, you know, turning into this big uppercut <laughs> yeah. guy. That's, that's not what he should be doing, but he's, he's shown very good back control, a lot of contact and he's, he's a top of the scale runner, obviously bloodlines in terms of uh, being a, some, a very good base dealer too, with his father, uh, Carl Crawford. Um, he hit, Hit well in low A, kept hitting pretty well when he got up to high A. 
at the end of the season, he's he's somebody where if if the bat is as good as I, I think it will be to be an everyday player, he's somebody who I could see stealing 50, mm. maybe 60 plus bases in a season. Yeah, he's a good one. He's a good one as well. I would be very curious to see some of the split that on like how quick he got up to speed because he is a little bit bigger than some of the other players that we're talking about here, but has always had just massive, um, just underway speed. I'm trying to see here who who are some other names that I like. I, I don't. I feel like there aren't as many obvious ones. Like I think Nassim Nunez can steal a lot of bases and just pretty quick, but I don't know that I have the confidence in like the offensive profile and just his takeoff rate to get there. Jet Williams is fast and stole bases efficiently, but I don't think of him as this massive stolen base leader. Like I wouldn't put him in the same tier as some of the players we've already talked about. Um, just kind of scanning down the list here. He stole, he went 32 for, or excuse me, he went uh, 32 is in St. Lucie. He went, he stole 45 bases this year. Yeah, 45 for 52 is an 86% success rate. Um, probably could stand to steal a little bit more often given how, given how often he's just getting on base. So yeah. he might be actually a <laughs> sneaky pick because we mentioned him as one of, I think, four players who got 100 walks. I imagine he'll continue posting a higher walk rate so if you feel like he'll get on base enough and is fat like i think these other players are faster than him but again i i didn't think corbin carroll was an 80 runner so i'm curious if jet williams is just getting faster and faster too um maybe he's like a dark horse for this category his name is literally jet his name is jet yeah but let's see i mean do you think Pete crow armstrong is of this caliber of runner i i wouldn't put him in the same category but he is a guy who should be playing every day and i'm more confident in his offensive tools and just the proximity to the big leagues than some of the players we talked about so maybe he's a candidate he went 37 for 47 this year 78 percent success rate would would he be a player that you're including i would yeah yeah i think Mm. he's one of the you know you said 37 steals this year in the minor leagues i think he's gonna hit and defend well enough we'll certainly Mm. defend well enough to play every day but the total yeah the the combination of the two for a player who I think is a chance to hit toward the, you know, be a top of the lineup hmm. type guy. I think, you know, he's again, not Enrique Bradfield type of runner, hmm. but you know, he, if you're looking for somebody who has a chance to steal 30 plus bases. Yeah. I, I certainly think that's in the cards for him. Another name I think is intriguing is Jordan Lawler. Um, kind of a Bobby Witt Jr. type in the sense that he's got a lot of other tools that maybe overshadow the speed, but he quietly went 36 for 41, 87% success rate. It's at least plus speed. I could see him having a tick more than plus speed too. He's another player that just the instincts have always seemed pretty solid in that regard. So I think he could be an interesting candidate. Um, yeah. Any other names that, that you feel like are worth mentioning here? I think Luis Angel Acuna is mm. an interesting one. Yeah. Obviously, older big bro can steal some bases. <laughs> um, but I think yeah, him and him and his brother. Well, it's obviously like Ronald is one of the faster players in the big leagues. But he is somebody where there is that gap between raw speed versus def- the defensive acumen. There's a gap there. Like he's not. You're talking about Ronald or Luis? Uh, more, yeah, certainly with Ronald. Right? Yeah. Like he runs comparably to 
a lot of center fielders, but hmm. is not, you know, even, even in a corner there, there are some things that could, <laughs> could still get better there. Um, Luis on Acuna, his little brother, uh, he stole 57 bases this year. I think still some question marks on like, what is the best defensive home for him uh, mm. as well? Uh, could end up being the outfield. It's, it's probably not going to be shortstop, at least if he stays with the Mets, uh, just given their incumbent incumbent situation there. Uh, and, and then I think there's also some questions just about overall impact to be mm. an everyday player. Like, how how much offensive value is there like he's a he's certainly a good minor league hitter is it going to be enough to be an everyday player by the time he gets to the big leagues there you can find some people who say yes uh, other people who think it's more of a utility type profile but i think if he does hit enough to be an everyday guy then i think he has the combination of speed and instincts and aggressiveness on the bases to be a you know a 30 or or maybe even a 40 stolen base guy even though he's not that 80 runner like some of these other guys we've we've mentioned yeah a couple other guys from the 2023 draft class who i think are interesting the first is homer bush jr um i would also throw him into the camp that like i want to be a little more convicted in the overall like hitting ability how often is he going to get on base but the debut was strong he stole bases at a 90 percent plus clip it was 22 for 24 um he did hit well in his debut it was 325 422 440 uh in 44 games uh, and he's gone to double a so he might be a sneaky pick i think he's a plus or better runner um he's a really good athlete if he's a better hitter than we expect he could he could easily jump into this camp i think and then for a player who Hasn't quite had the stolen base volume in the minor leagues just yet, but it's also at the very beginning of his career. But I feel more confident in the overall offensive ability is Dylan Head. Uh, He was pretty consistently a double-plus runner as an amateur. I think he's got those quick twitch, really good acceleration skills. Um, Again, he's only played 27 games, stole four bags, was caught three times. But I would expect him to steal more next year over a full season in the minor leagues i think he could be an interesting candidate for this as well yeah him and then if kendall george who uh was mm. a dodgers draft pick this year out yeah. of high school if he can hit enough to get into an everyday role he he is a true 80 runner yeah Hell he's hit. maybe the most like bradfield of all these players we've mentioned in terms of offensive profile ability to bunt quickly out of the box yeah yeah he'll hit a ground ball and it's like there's a very good chance it's gonna be an infield single Mm. shallow fly ball into the outfield there's a decent chance he might end up standing on second base Mm. uh he can he can absolutely fly the question is all right well how much more offensive impact is there going to be than those infield hits and those pretty shallow fly balls which i think is still a concern but he does make a lot of contact seems to have a solid sense of the strike zone but it's you know right now it's uh top of the scale speed and bottom of the scale power so hopefully some more uh impact can come can feel feel more confident about um that happening with dylan head not that i think dylan head is going to go out and be a 30 home run guy 
either, but uh, just a little bit more juice in there right now with Dylan mm-hmm. Head with uh, uh, maybe a, a step less speed. Yeah. What, what about another guy who probably has a step less speed than Kendall George, but I imagine the, the conviction in his offensive ability is as high as anyone we're going to talk about. But Max Clark, I mean, I mean, he's a double plus runner, consistently turned in 70 grade times for me uh, all throughout the showcase circuit. Um, another guy who can turn infield ground balls into hits pretty easily. He didn't steal a ton of bags in his debut. It was only 23 games, but he went five for six. Like he has the pure speed and has shown the aggression on the bases to be a stolen base accumulator. Uh, he does so many other things well that maybe he's a player that you don't think of when we're talking about these like stolen base monsters, but I don't see why he couldn't also be in the conversation here. Yeah, yeah, I put him in in that group too. Absolutely. I mean, we don't have the the you know the track record for him the way we have with you know Bradfield and some of these other guys in Pro Bowl. Um but certainly the the raw foot speed and the just kind of the game intelligence and aggressiveness that we've seen from him makes me think he could be a guy like that too. Any other affiliated players or do you have any sleepers from either the upcoming draft classes or international classes who aren't yet an affiliated ball that you think could uh, be some of these speed demons in the future? Well, I'm curious what happens with a couple of the young young Yankees now with Jason Dominguez mm. and with Spencer Jones, because they're two guys who can really run and did steal a lot of bases in the minors uh, with Jason Dominguez, Spencer Jones, and they're two very, very different body types than a lot of the guys that we've talked about so far and very different body types than each other as well. Uh, like I think you look at, Dominguez and he's you know five nine ish uh mm. built like a little <laughs> little running back uh, so he he doesn't have that uh you know thin wiry uh lean Enrique Bradfield look to him or, or that a lot of the you know the better stolen base guys often have but he he is at least a, a plus runner, and he went forty for forty eight, stealing bases in the minor leagues this year. Um, so I think that can be uh, a part of his game. It, it it even was you know was a part of his game in twenty twenty two as well. Obviously, it's more challenging to um, evaluate that just from the numbers when you're looking at lower level stolen base numbers because pitchers are just worse at holding runners the catchers aren't as good at throwing guys out but yep it does seem like that's going to be part of his game and then spencer jones talk about big guys so you you might think it would take longer to get going i mean he's six 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 seven right yeah he he stole 43 bases this year too which was a you know he was not a big stolen base guy really in college um or in 22 i mean he he didn't maybe play a lot obviously in 22 but i'm curious how i i just don't know but i'm just curious how much that's going to be a part of his game in the big leagues it would be fun if that was a part of his game in the big leagues because to your point he's six foot six six foot seven and we just ran down the list earlier of the six three plus guys who have massive stolen base totals it's it's mostly the shorter players. I think he is a guy who I would imagine 
takes a little bit to get underway. You look at his stolen base success rate, it's quite a bit lower than a lot of the other players we talked about this past year, 43 for um, 55, 78% success rate. Like Dominguez was close to 90% with his success rate, or maybe he was close to 83%. Either way, like I would expect if Spencer Jones does have steals in his bag at the big league level, it's probably not at the level of like a Corbin Carroll or CJ Abrams. Um, and I don't know, just, I guess it depends on how his body develops over the future. Like how much more, how much thicker is he going to get? How long is his speed going to stay part of his game for both these players? I think there could be concerns with how the speed tool develops with them as they get into their mid twenties and late twenties. I wouldn't think of either of them as like obvious stolen base champs or, or guys who are going to steal 30 plus bags each year, but I think they're interesting players to talk through because they, they steal more than you would think. Uh, and they both move very well despite having a bit unorthodox body types. Like Spencer Jones, I remember getting plus times on him as a runner out of high school and seeing how big he was and how lanky he was. You're like, he moves shockingly well. He's just a tremendous athlete for his size. Mm-hmm. Um, so I don't think he's quite at that Ellie De La Cruz level, but maybe he has some just some of that freak athleticism that just allows him to get going quicker. Uh, so those are two fun ones that are maybe of the unorthodox body type and build mold. Yeah, I would put, and, and also a different, a very different body type than Spencer Jones, but Tyler Black with the Brewers, who hmm. mostly played third base this year, uh, a little bit of first base too, but he's, you know, he's played some second base, some center field, he stole he stole 55 bases this year got caught 12 times between double a and triple a he was not somebody they they drafted him out of Wright state he was not a big stolen base guy uh wasn't really a big stolen base guy last year either his first full season and it's weird because he's he is a good athlete he's Probably like 5'10", 5'11", 205, more of like a blocky, stocky type build. You wouldn't look at him and think, oh, this is going to be a a really good athlete or or a big stolen base guy. Uh, But he is a plus runner. It certainly hasn't translated on the defensive side. They're kind of moving him all around trying to find the best defensive spot for him. Uh, Footwork's a little bit uh, clunky hands, all that. Like it's pretty limited range to definitely more of an offensive minded player. A lot of certainly a lot more conviction in his hitting ability. His strike zone judgment is, is excellent. So, you know, at 284, 417, 513 this year. I, I he's somebody I'm curious how the how, how much of that prolific uh, element of his stolen base uh of the stolen bases continues as he's gets to the big leagues because I think he he is he is a plus runner uh but he's also just a very smart base dealer like he he mm. gets really good jumps knows how to read pitchers i think that accounts for a lot of it and i think that could continue to work for him and and relative to some of the other players we talked about who are uh, maybe speedier guys he i think has a better chance to 
uh, or a higher probability of making it as an everyday player. And if mm. you're looking for a potential kind of sneaky-ish 30-plus stolen base threat, he could be uh, a guy. I've got a guy who might be sneaking the opposite direction in the sense that I have little doubt about his pure speed and running ability, but a lot more questions about just the base running instincts and like the chances that he'll get enough ABs in the big leagues to qualify, and that's Amarian Boyd. It, it doesn't seem like he's ever been an efficient base runner despite being double plus or better. Uh, this year at low A, um, low A Clearwater in 91 games, he went 56, um, 56 stolen bases, was constantly 18 times for a 75% success rate in the lower levels of the minors. Like of the players in the minor leagues who had really 40 plus bags, that was the worst stolen base rate just in terms of success rate. So he's a guy who's plenty fast, but I wonder how much polish he'll add to his game if he'll hit enough to just accumulate the playing time to get on and steal enough at the big league level. Like he, he got on base a decent amount. He had 262, 366, excuse me, 324, um, but has always just been kind of a burner who was raw in other areas of his game. I'll be curious to see the reports on him this offseason because if you're looking at pure runners, I would imagine Boyd would be one of the top names just in pro baseball overall. Whether or not he adds enough to other areas of his game is going to be the big question with him. You're talking about the Phillies. Um, yeah, sorry. This is yeah. Phillies outfielder Amarian Boyd. He was drafted in the 11th round in 2022. Um, we ranked him. He was on the BA 500. I'm trying to see where exactly he was ranked. 2022 is weird on our site right now. They're not showing up, but he, he was a burner. I think he had the fastest 60-yard time at East Coast Pro his draft year. So has always been a really fast, speedy guy. But in terms of like overall prospect, hitting ability, I think still some questions there. Yeah. And then, uh, yeah, well, I guess the guy probably the most confidence in would be Jackson Churio. I mean, kind of the yeah <laughs> to, to state the obvious, like you yeah, know, he's good. Brewers number one prospect, probably uh, as good of a thirty thirty candidate in the minors as you're mm. going to find. I, I think he's another one too. There, these these five tool players who do a lot of things well and are known more for their offensive exploits. When I think of Jackson Churio in my head, I don't think of speedster. And I think that's just because the other tools are more valuable and he's so good at the other tools that it's it's more of like a nice cherry on top. But it's a good point, the fact that he, you're going to have more confidence in him than any of these players that we've mentioned by far to just hit enough to be in the lineup to accumulate those stolen bases. So, yeah. Yeah. You, you guys heard it here first on Jackson Cheerio. Mm, yeah, good player. <laughs> Go out, run and grab him in your dynasty leagues. Yeah. I could give you some more uh, some more deeper sleeper types, though. If, uh... Sure. If you want, I mean, if you, if you want some DSL guys, I can throw some names at you. I'm all for Uh, it. I'm sure there are people who, who actually are like unironically now in dynasty leagues who might need to get those stolen bases in categories, or you're just, you're a prospect town and you want to know who these, who these speedsters are. Yeah. This might be a little more useful than hearing that Jackson Cheerio is pretty good. Um, (laughs) Well, I'll start with like a couple guys who probably are a little bit more higher profile. Um, at least a BA readers, Dodgers outfielder Eduardo Quintero. He is a six-five runner, very unusual profile because he signed uh, out of Venezuela as a uh, a catcher and a center fielder, 
I think even internally, the Dodgers were split on what would be the best way to develop him because you have this player who looks like he can catch uh, and, and be an extremely athletic catcher with a plus arm. Uh, on the other hand, he has the speed to handle center field and the bat uh, looked like it could be the type where he could move pretty quickly through the system if he's in center field, whereas if you put him behind the plate, the just the demands of catching might slow him down. So they opted to put him in the outfield. He might be the best prospect in the Dominican Summer League, or at least he's in that conversation. Um, hit 359, 472, 618 this year. Uh, walks about equal to strikeouts, and he stole 22 bases in 26 attempts. So with him not catching and playing center field now, uh, I think he has the, you know, especially given the uh, the offensive life that he showed at the plate, he has a chance to be a pretty impactful, uh, just all around player, but mm. with with the stolen base component as well. Um, and then you know, let's say Brando Maya, outfielder for the Yankees, he signed for the third largest bonus of any player. This year for $4.35 uh, hitting ability, compact swing with adjustability, high contact guy, flashing plus-plus run times. Uh, no, stole another guy who stole 22 bases this year in the DSL, smart player. Um, him, like Andres Valor, an outfielder with the Marlins, I think we said like coming into the year, him and Gennaro Miller, the the two way player that the Marlins signed, that these were going to be the key guys to watch from a pretty deep signing class for the Marlins this year. He had a pretty strong year, um, showed power, speed, strikeouts were higher than you'd like to see for for a DSL hitter, twenty four percent K rate, but uh, but there's physicality, well above average speed underway. He stole 21 bases in, in 21 attempts. He is somebody who I think might slow down uh, as he fills out. Uh, but like we talked about, it's, it's kind of hard to say and predict that sometimes. But um, certainly one of the more high-profile DSL guys to, uh, to watch as far as uh, speed and, and just mm. overall impact too. Yeah, no, those are good ones. Um, should we touch on any domestic players in 24 or 25 draft classes? I know both you and I have done a lot of work on on both those draft classes on the high school side recently. So are there any obvious speedsters that jump out to you there? I think it, it feels like there are less obvious burners uh, in 24 than previous draft classes. But I think some of the names who stand out as as the fastest players in the group, like Connor Griffin is one that's kind of in the would be in the Max Clark realm of like just toolsy player overall who's also a double plus runner. I think Dante Nori, uh, an outfielder in the twenty four class, is, is quite old for the class, but he consistently turns in double plus run times. I think he ran the best sixty at PG National this summer. Uh, another outfielder out of Georgia, Michael Mullinax, he's been a double plus runner, um, and then a Texas outfielder, Braylon Payne. Those are all some of the louder runners in the 24 class are there any real true burners in 25 uh to, to mention here yeah i would say nori stands out to me from that group both as far as the the speed the ability to accelerate quickly mm. the athleticism and then some uh hitting ability there too i, I would throw slate caldwell into yeah, that mix too a good one. um smaller guy didn't play a lot this summer i think he got hurt but 
Um, he was really, little... really good at area codes. He he showed as much hitting ability as anyone there, and like you said, turned ground balls into singles. Was very active on the bases. Gets up to top speed super quickly. Covers a lot of ground in the outfield. Yeah, that's a good one. Yeah, yeah, smaller frame, five eight, five nine, uh, but some some strength there mm. too. So um, yeah, I think a lot of good good components with him for for twenty five. Couple guys. Um, Everett Johnson, an outfielder from North Carolina, maybe the best baseball IQ in the class. Everything he does is just so, so polished, so advanced. He's definitely on the the smaller side, like like Caldwell is. Uh, maybe not as much strength. Um, so I think that that could that'll be a question that scouts have as a high school player heading into the the draft in a couple years but if he gets to if he makes it to nc state where he's committed i think he has a chance to start right away and you know be one of the best freshmen in the acc and uh he's he's such a high contact hitter controls the strike zone so well really high on base threat and then he's a plus plus runner who's also just a very savvy all-around player including on the base pass, so potential to steal a lot of bases, and he's the type of guy who I would not be surprised if he ends up being in the conversation to to be an All American by uh, by his junior year, assuming he he gets to campus. Uh, and then Eli Pitts, um, you know, an, an outfielder, a center fielder from uh, from Georgia, who uh, is some more rawness to his game. He, he missed some time this year with injuries. Uh, but he is as explosive as any player in the country, uh, probably like six foot, six one or so, uh, but strong too, like lean, strong, um, extremely athletic, um, probably going to be in the conversation for fastest player in, in the country, at least among the, you know, the top draft prospects uh, for, for 2025. So um, there's definitely a lot of, Things. So I, I think of like like Nazan Zanatello this year. Who, what did, what did he sign for with the Red Sox? Like a few million dollars, I think it was. Yeah, so. two plus. He was an overslot guy in the second round. I can pull up exactly what he signed for, but it was a, a good amount. Yeah, so I, I wouldn't use him necessarily as a, a comp, but just some similarities in the sense of, you know, very athletic, up the middle uh, guys with a lot of quick twitch, uh, bounce, explosiveness to them with, with some question marks still about pure hitting ability. And if a team really values that, like Zanatello shows, <laughs> you yeah. get a, you know, a couple million. He signed for 3 million, 3 so million. Yeah. D- decent chunk of change. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. All right. Uh, well, we have a ton of questions to get to. We, we put out the call for questions on the podcast and you guys came through. There are a lot of good ones. So you don't want a, my, you don't want my deep, deep, deep no, sleepers. Don't want it. Don't want yeah. it too much. No, you can run through them if no. you want. Feel yeah, free, yeah, I can get. Yeah, yeah, I kind of ran over some of the more well-known names, but uh, if you're looking for a, like a deep, deep sleeper uh, in your league, or, or just for somebody to follow who's got some higher stolen base upside, a uh, few names like Rockies outfielder Yiker Reyes, I think, is a very interesting one to watch. Six-one, uh, wiry, athletic, plus runner, pretty instinctive player all around uh, in center field at the plate on the base pads signed out of Venezuela this year, 
hit 301, 431, 368 in the DSL. So not much power, didn't hit any home runs, but a knack for putting the ball in play, has a sense for the strike zone, and he runs well. Stole 33 bases in 35 attempts, obviously caught just a couple times. So power needs to come, but he was playing this year at 17 years old. If if the strength and more power comes, he's somebody who uh, could take a jump uh, next next year, uh, at least among these potential high stolen base threats in the DSL. Um, another another Yankees guy to watch is uh, Gabriel Lara, an outfielder. We we listed him as a sleeper to watch in the Yankees signing class this year. He got thirty thousand dollars out of the DR five eight little guy, uh, legit eighty runner. He can play center field. He hit. It was 267, 401, 411 this year. Stole 18 bases in, in 26 attempts. I thought he'd be more of a like a slap hitter. And it's not that he has big power, but he did hit four home runs in 43 games this year. Probably more than, uh, at least more than I would have thought. So he's another one to watch. Uh, the Braves signed a shortstop, Mario Baez. He hit 311. 393, 422 in 47 games in the DSL. So 24 stolen bases, caught five times. And he played almost the entire DSL season as a 16-year-old. He turned 17 right at the end of August. So like if you think about it, if he had been born a week later, he wouldn't even be eligible to sign until January 15th of next year. Uh, Braves gave him 240, uh, another smaller guy, m- more in that like stocky, strong mold though than that small, wiry type guy. But he's he's a plus plus runner, at least underway. Um, playing shortstop now, we'll see long term, maybe more second, third base, but uh, wouldn't move him off the position yet. Um, the couple others would be if you're looking for just for like deep sleepers. Uh, Pedro Katui with the an outfielder with the Diamondbacks, 6'2", 160 pounds, signed out of Panama this year. He played for Panama's uh, U18 in the World Cup uh, when they had it here in the States. Uh, I, I thought he'd be more of a, a raw athlete, but he hit 288, 361, 441 in 48 games in the DSL. He had four home runs. It's a pretty aggressive approach, but just a really intriguing athlete. Uh, just one of those long gliding runners that we talked about, plus plus speed. Uh, you see it in center field in the way he moves, and it, it showed up on the bases too. 18 stolen bases, only caught twice. Uh, and then one other one other guy I mentioned too is uh, Eriberto Rincon, who's a, a Mets outfielder. Uh, they, they gave, obviously, Anthony Baptiste more you know, more money, more attention. He got 1.1 million. He's an 80 runner too. He, or he can fly obviously, but, uh, any, any had a good year in the DSL. Uh, but Rincon is a, a lesser known player, $150,000 signing from the DR quick burst athlete, lean, twitchy, uh, all those attributes. And, and he's a 70 runner. So, um, good year in the DSL 301, 398, 374, Stole 17 bases in 20 attempts, 
not a lot of power, obviously still a, a strength away type guy um, at uh, 17 years old uh, this season. But uh, if you're just looking for like deep, deep sleepers who have stolen base potential, he's uh, he's another name to, to tuck away. Nice. Well, there you go. Um, now we don't have any time to get to questions. So thanks uh, to Ben. For, no, I'm just kidding. We'll, we'll hop into those now. I don't have as many sleepers as Ben does for the speed category, but there are plenty to uh, to pick from. So if, if any of these players starts hitting uh, and you're in a dynasty league and you need steals, scoop them up. Uh, and I guess a number of them have already hit in small samples in the DSL. So uh, good, good names there, Ben. But are you good to go to questions now? Yeah. All right, let's do it. Uh, we'll just go down the list here. No particular order. Uh, JD Cameron on Twitter asked, how do you evaluate a prospect like Kalai Rosario offensively where the power is undeniable, the on-base percentage is strong, but there's a ton of strikeouts and some swing and miss there. Bonus if there's any under-the-hood data. A bigger picture, how do you order offensive indicators for prospects where there's clear strengths and weaknesses like Rosario? Do you more strongly weigh certain offensive indicators and why? So this is a good question in general. Um, I guess... You can take it first, Ben, but I think that if you were to pick out some of the traits uh, that you want of like the big three of bat to ball skills, uh, swing decisions and power, if I could only pick two, I would probably choose power and swing decisions. I'm curious if you would go. I think I put a poll on Twitter about this the other a few weeks ago. If you could pick two of those three and be really good at those and just punt on the third, which combo would you prefer? Uh, I think most people chose power and something um, with power and swing decisions being the most common. But uh, yeah, just how, how would you answer JD's question here? And I can pull up some some stats on Kali Rosario too. Well, I think you can, it just depends. It's There's different, I don't want to fall into like a cookie cutter philosophy mm. of just always choosing, you know, one is <clears throat> better than the other. But I do think there are things that can work for hitters at the lower levels who have patience and power, but have bigger holes in their swing that work in college when you don't have to swing a wood bat or in low A where the pitching is not as good. The stuff is not as good. The command is not as good and you can have success with that there that then gets exploited more the higher you go up. Um, so I'd probably lean a little bit more toward uh, contact than just the, the raw power. Now if we're talking about a big league player uh, that's different. Uh, but if we're talking about projecting a player who's, you know, 19, 20 years old, where I think, power can can still increase and can still come at that age I, I would bet on that generally speaking more so than i would fixing significant holes in a player swing that are already leading to you know say a 30 something percent strikeout rate for you know just for this hypothetical hitter in a ball and being able to correct those flaws uh, as he moves up and is only going to be facing better and better pitching. Uh, yeah, that's a good point. Uh, and just to kind of get into Rosario's numbers a little bit, as a 21-year-old um, this year at 
I think the entire year was at Cedar Rapids in high A. He hit 252, 364, 467, 21 homers, um, 75 walks, 157 strikeouts. That was good for a 29% strikeout rate, which I think is getting towards that scary territory, especially in the low minors. Um, 14% walk rate, so he's getting on base a decent clip. He hit the ball on average just under 90 miles per hour with a 107 mile per hour 90th percentile mark. I think both those are really loud numbers. Uh, he chased less than 20% of the time, which is a strong rate, but the overall miss, weight, miss rate of 34% is, is going to be the one that you're concerned about. And I think to Ben's point, how much worse does that get as he progresses up the minor leagues? How much of the power is he able to tap in? in games once he's facing pitchers that are more capable of exploiting the holes in his swing is is the ultimate question because you can deal with a 40 grade batting average um at the big league level but this is a a guy at, at high a who is striking out at a, a pretty high clip but i think the obp skills and the power tools are both encouraging for him and I know this year uh, he was a uh, kind of a name to know in general. Do you have any like general thoughts on Rosario, or you want to move on to the next question? Um, yeah, no, I think that's uh, kind of a good synopsis of him. Obviously, a lot to like with the mm. patience and the power, but the swing yeah. and miss risk is pretty concerning. Like I think back to maybe like Nick Weglar's when he was mm. in the coming up with the minor leagues. So I, I liked a lot. Um, coming up with the, I guess he wasn't coming up with the Guardians at the time, but coming up with the Indians through their farm system, pretty highly Mm. ranked prospect, but uh, just, you know, was never able to uh, put it all together at at the higher levels. All right, let's move on to our next question from Marcus Zappia on Twitter. Uh, He asks, what would be a fun prospect for, for prospect trade? I think this is an awesome question because we almost never see just straight up prospect for prospect trades. Um, I'm not so really can, sure. So we can just that? make stuff up. Yeah, we can make stuff up, but but it's it's fun to think about because it does feel like if you have if you are a team with like a top prospect, uh, and for whatever reason there's another team with a similarly ranked prospect, it, it feels like the default is to be biased towards the player you have, and you'd rather keep your player then trade mm-hmm. him away and have him wind up being better. Like there, there seems to be a fear of doing a prospect for prospect trade and just missing the evaluation. Um, and, and if he's a guy you drafted, like you probably you have, have a lot of in your, in him. Yeah. people in your organization who are going to advocate for him. And he's probably somebody who fits the molds of the type of players that you're looking for too. Yeah, exactly. So I, I, I think one of these, we talked about it the other day, these, elite duos at the top of systems like imagine if the nationals and the rangers were to have a dylan cruz and wyatt langford swap like i feel like the fan bases of both those teams are so invested in those players that both teams would be outraged by the move um but i think they're pretty comparable players overall so it seems like a fair value like you could move down further and think about like evan carter versus colton Kowser. like obviously Everyone is really excited about what Evan Carter's done in the postseason, but I would view those two players similarly. So any sort of premier, like top 50 prospect for prospect trade, I think would just be fascinating because we never see it. So you could almost put together any combination here. Like like if the Orioles were 
just decided we have too much infield inventory. Let's trade Jackson Holiday for Jackson Chorio. I'm sure I'm sure Baltimore <laughs> fans would be pissed. And I'm sure that like Brewers fans they would probably be pissed too because they have so much invested in Chorio. But, but could you imagine that trade? That would be awesome. That would be That would be yeah. Thanks. That would be awesome. Like it's not going to happen and this is uh, like it, we're, we're mostly just making up stuff to to get excited but you can make you can make a path of logic where that trade makes sense for for certainly the Orioles I'm not sure about the Brewers like what's the state of the Brewers infield like you, you probably can make a sense where it makes sense or make a you can make a case for this making sense for both teams and it not be crazy while also acknowledging that it's never going to happen well it would it would I would I would do it if I was the Brewers well, we we are solidly in, in the yeah. Jackson Holiday camp here at BA, but I think you could easily well, I love go Jackson to Jackson Cheerio, sure. Yeah, but you could easily go to like Jeff and Josh, and it wouldn't shock me if both those were like, well, yeah, give me Jackson Cheerio. I would do it if I was the Orioles, you know. Uh, I don't know. I, you'd have to throw in something. <laughs> I remember. Else. And, I remember and having the Jackson Holiday as number one player. I guess this was in comparison to Ellie uh, before Ellie had graduated, but we were the Holiday camp and. There was a lot of people who were not in the holiday camp uh, at the margins, obviously. I, I, what I'm saying is I don't think it's crazy if you found someone who was like, yeah, I'm Jackson Chorio over Jackson Holiday. Yeah, I guess. <laughs> you don't seem convinced that that's the case. <laughs> okay, well, what's another what's another prospect for prospect trade? Well, I think the you're right, though, that the, the Orioles do have a surplus of young infielders who are either in the big leagues now or are on the cusp of being ready. Uh, so they have, they have a very good problem on their hands right now. They have Gunnar Henderson at shortstop. Mm. They have Jordan Westberg on the roster. Yeah. They have Jackson Holiday, the number one prospect in baseball, on the verge of being in Baltimore at some point in 2024. And then they have Joey Ortiz, too. Like He's a top 100 prospect. He had 321, 378, 507 in AAA this past season at 24 years old. Made his major league debut. He was mostly playing shortstop in AAA. Uh, got some exposure to second and third base, too. But I, I think their starting rotation is an area where they could upgrade. Um, and then, all right, well, who has... Who, who has a good, you know, source of pitching right now? I, I think the Marlins are a team that has pitching, but definitely did not have a good offense. They signed Gene Segura before the season. That ended up being <laughs> total, total waste. Um, you know, they have Luis Arias at second base. They traded for Jake Berger. We'll, we'll see how much of that uptick uh, from 2023 sticks around. Um, Shortstop is open though. They they have Xavier Edwards in the minor leagues. He's definitely a a split camp guy. Um, but Max Meyer is a prospect who there's a lot of risk. He didn't pitch last year. He's coming back from Tommy John surgery. He's probably not going to give you a true starters full season workload because of that in 2024. But he did reach the big leagues in 2022. He did pitch well in AAA that year. I think the Orioles could use starting pitching. And, yeah, I mean, like the Marlins could too. Probably everybody could to a certain extent. That's more of a strength for them. 
than their offense. So in this, like, again, we're just making stuff up, (laughs) (laughs) but I think that could be a fit for, for both clubs, Joey Ortiz and Max Meyer. Yeah, that's a good one. It's not quite as fun as uh, Jackson Chorio for Jackson Holiday, but I, I like the logic to it. I like the thought that you put behind that one. Yeah, well, I, I think it's going to be hard for <laughs> teams. <laughs> I'm looking more for like, all right, well, who has who has a surplus at at one position? Okay, who so here's here's one. How about this? I, I just thought about this as I was looking over our list, but I imagine the Padres are going to have some need for starting pitching next year, just considering some of the guys coming off the books there. They're ready to win now. What what if the Padres tried to trade Ethan Salas for Paul Skeens? Who who says no? What are we talking about? <laughs> We're making up trades, Ben. Oh my god. No. How, which I, side I, of that would you rather have? There's no way the Pirates do that cuz They just drafted the number 1 overall. None of these are happening. Yeah, we have to get past our fear of that. Yeah, we're we're a rebuilding team that's been <laughs> losing forever. And our GM has been there for enough time where like this has to start working soon. I don't think they're trading Paul. Kick Steve the rebuild down for, the road. Uh, get a seventeen-year-old catcher. That's exactly what Pirates Tra- fans trade Paul Skeens to a team who's ready to put him in the big leagues on day one. Yeah, let's go. Yeah, you, you got the fi- your finger on the pulse of the Pirates. <laughs> 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 right now i mean look like who who would you rather have like i I think that's skins for me yeah it's it's at least debatable but i Mm. don't think there's any way the the pirates are doing that just given their current situation would the pirates trade paul skeens for jackson holiday with the well yeah but then you're getting a shortstop who can help your team in 2024 would they trade him for jackson churio jackson churio I don't. I don't think the Brewers would do that one. How how far down our list do you think the Pirates would not trade Paul Skeens for another player? I'm assuming not very far because Dylan Cruz is number three, and the Pirates had the opportunity to select him one one, and they chose Paul Skeens. So, and and paid him more than yeah. So Cruz you, basically, yeah. you think it's just Jackson Holiday is the only player the Pirates would trade Paul Skeens for. No, I well, no, I, I would say I wouldn't. Any if, prospect, I was, if I was prospect. the Brewers, I wouldn't trade Churio for Skeens. I'm saying Hol- Holiday is the one that you think the the Pirates would. But oh, so you're saying you think the Brewers might or would trade Paul Skeens for Jackson Churio? No, I'm saying if I'm the Brewers, and the <laughs> I know Pirates, that I know that you're, you're yeah. you wouldn't. But from the Pirates' perspective, if the Brewers were like, we really don't like this Churio character. He's not it. We want Paul Skeens one for one. Do the Pirates say yes to that? <laughs> I would much rather have Paul Skeens with the Brewers, who have shown an ability to get the most out of their pitchers, than the Pirates, who are still waiting on that. So I would love it from a from a, a perspective of someone who's not with either team. Uh, but I don't know which team would say no. I, the Brewers would say no. But the, I, I think that the Pirates also might say no to that. Uh, I would rather have Cheerio, so maybe they they might say no yeah. just because they've yeah yeah been so invested. I I do think there's another, like the Brewers do have uh, a situation where it does make <clears throat> sense, where they do need pitching help, right? Like Brandon Woodruff had shoulder surgery. Mm. They have Corbin Burns, Freddie Peralta. All right, Robert Gasser I think looks ready to step up into the back of the rotation this year. 
I, I think Jacob Misierowski is extremely talented, but he's not ready yet. Carlos Rodriguez is intriguing. All right, but where they're really strong in is young outfielders. Sal Frelick, uh, they have Garrett Mitchell, who's risky, uh, but he's coming back. Uh, Joey Weimer, I'm not crazy about the profile, but uh, he's there as well. Uh, there's probably more in there than what he showed this year. And then obviously long-term, uh, Jackson Churio is the franchise cornerstone. Uh, and all of those guys could play center fields. And, and then they have Christian Yelich too. Um, the Guardians are a team that does have a lot of pitching. Shane Bieber, Tanner Bybee, Logan Allen, uh, Gavin Williams, Tristan McKenzie. So certainly there's some durability questions in there, but pitching is is a strength for them. Center field is definitely not. <laughs> they have the lowest OPS in baseball from the center field position last mm. year. So uh, where are you going with this one, Ben? I, I'm going to I'm going to cheat here because <laughs> these guys were just recently graduated prospects. Oh no! But are you giving Cleveland another another contact bat with no power? <laughs> you know it. You know it. <laughs> I'll give them oh, no. Sal, the Brewers will give them Sal Frelick. Yeah. And and they'll get back in return from the Guardians. They'll get back Gavin Williams. Oh, so. no. <laughs> the, the, the Guardians, look, they're trading from a, a source of strength here. Yeah. The Brewers get a young, talented starting pitcher. Oh, I think the Brewers would love this trade. <laughs> several years of team control. And then and then the Guardians get a, a significant upgrade in center field, another young cost controlled player that certainly fits within their uh, operational model and is a very guardians guardians flavored player, Mm. right? Short stature, questionable power, but high contact, great barrel control, a left-handed hitter who they can plug in at a premium position uh, right away. I think there's going to be pain on, on both sides from that one, but like you, you, kind of need to have some to get something good in return if the guardians are trading a pitching prospect like gavin williams to get a speedy contact hitting outfielder then i I don't really know what they've been doing in the draft because i feel like i feel like they take these guys every year and trading a guy i think you would rather have an arm like williams and i like south like i think he can be a good player but i i feel like it's just harder to with all the attrition that you have with pitching, I feel like it's harder to find a Gavin Williams than a Sal Frelick. And so I'd rather be on the Williams side. But again, you have constructed a, a logical trade here, Ben, that I think you could make a case for. I, I think I would just be more on the, the Williams side here. Well, I think the attrition with pitching is what creates more risk with somebody who is a pitcher, mm-hmm. I would say, than, yeah. than with... And yeah, player. and why I'd rather just have the pitcher because in order to have a solid rotation of, of five starters, you need about fifteen of them. So I'd rather hang on to Mister Mister Williams. All right. Well, uh, I guess <laughs> another year of uh, what was it Miles Straw this year? <laughs> yeah. Hey, uh, maybe maybe Chase the Ladder will move quickly and remain playing center field <laughs> <Okay>. somehow. <laughs> 
All right. I think that's enough made up trades for us, but hopefully that satisfied you, Marcus. Thanks for the question. Um, let's move on to advanced stats 23 on Twitter. Which player's stock rose the most off of the Arizona Fall League? Uh, first of all, how much do you think a player's stock can move with a good Arizona Fall League? Because it seems like a very unique um, evaluation environment. Yeah, probably not a ton because it's just not – it's like how much can a player stock change in July? Like it's not that long of a season for them. Uh, yeah. It is the off season. It's a weird environment. Hmm. Um, I mean, I think like Ricky Tiedemann is an interesting one just because he didn't pitch a whole lot during the season and he didn't pitch deep into games. But he actually, like, surprisingly to me, has, I mean, I wouldn't say like deep into <laughs> games, but, you know, he's thrown more than his, uh, the, the three inning starts that the Blue Jays were, you know, mostly limiting him to during the regular season. So uh, I wouldn't say like a big up aerial or anything like that mm. with him, but it's at least nice to see him go a little bit deeper into games finally yeah i'll just use this question to plug a few good stories that that might go in depth more into this uh for some lower profile prospects josh recently wrote about padres right hander brayden net um i mean he specifically referenced the helium that he has from the afl so maybe he's just a candidate um really big stuff fastball up to 99 cutter sweeper change up um Makes hitters look silly when he's playing it over the plate, but if the delivery and the control can come, uh, he could be a huge up arrow guy. And then Jeff also wrote about AFL. Um, both of those guys have been all over the AFL lately. But another Padres prospect, this one, Jacob Marcy. He looked at Marcy's offensive ingredients, the contact ability, the power. Um, it seems like Padres have a couple of players who uh, have just opened eyes, have been impressive and could be moving up. So I would just encourage you to go check out those stories for, for more depth on both those players. Um, okay. Mike Alberts on Twitter. He says, Marcelo Meyer. I love him thoughts on him overall and what seemed to be poor numbers in Portland. Um, I'm not sure if Mike saw or heard, I'm not sure exactly what podcast it was, but maybe a month ago we had a podcast where you went in depth into Marcelo Meyer and we found out he was dealing with an injury. But if you want to just like revisit that conversation, uh, I guess in a little more brevity, uh, Ben, thoughts on Marcelo Meyer? How, how seriously should we take the the down numbers for him? I mean, overall this year he hit 236, 306, 433, was hitting really well in high A, 290, 366, 524. Um, and then in double A, 43 games, it was 189, 254, 355. Um, but you can expand on that more because I know you had some thoughts previously. Yeah, I'm a, I'm a big fan of Marcelo Meyer. I think the shoulder injury was a big factor for him this year. It's, you know, he, he missed some time during the regular season. Like if, if you look at what he was hitting through, it was like May 7th, he was hitting oh yeah, 337, 414, 582. Had the shoulder injury, came back, played, and it sounded like he was really playing through a lot of pain. Um, just trying to like tough it out, play through it. And it seems like that really took uh, a toll on his numbers and really playing through the pain. I'm sure it didn't make the injury any better too. So like 
they got to August and they just said, look, just shut it down. Uh, let's, let's make sure we're getting you back to hundred percent healthy for next season. So I, I think the numbers during the regular season after the time he got hurt, uh, obfuscate his underlying true talent level. Now there is some added risk of like, okay, like he hurt his shoulder once, maybe there's greater chance of him re-injuring that. Um, so that is a factor, but I think if he's able to come back fully healthy, we're going to see numbers much more in line with what we've seen from him earlier in his career and early this season before he had that injury. So uh, still, still very high on him. Yeah, I'm pretty much in agreement with you there. I don't have too much to add, so I'll just leave it at that. And we can move on to our next question. Uh, this is a draft question from Not Huli on Twitter, who asks, if Brody Breck fixes his command, is there any chance he will be rated as high as Paul Skeens? Um, this is a good question. I mean, we currently have Brody Brecht as the top-ranked pitcher in the 2024 class for college. I do think a Paul Skeens comparison is too aggressive um, both because Paul Skeens was just a very rare pitching prospect. You don't get a Paul Skeens in every draft class. I mean, pretty consistently, scouts are saying he's the best pitching prospect since Steven Strasburg. So um, they're not common. I also don't think that you can fix command in one year um, to the degree that you would need to with a guy like Brady Brecht. If you look at Paul Skeens' walk rate his entire career, this is while he was also a two-way player and a catcher with Air Force, the highest walk rate he had in a single season was 8.4%. Uh, Brody Brecht walked 21.2% of batters in 2022, and he walked 18.4% of batters in 2023. So you would need a massive improvement in, in just control to get that walk rate dialed into uh, what Paul Skeens showed. Paul Skeens also had control and phenomenal fastball command, pretty great slider command as well. So I just think they're not in the same universe in terms of control and command overall and just the usability of the stuff. Brody Breck does have phenomenal pure stuff, a fastball that gets in the triple digits, a really wicked slider. Uh, so in terms of like the individual pitch grades, you might be close, but what separates Paul Skeens from your typical top of the class pitcher was just the touch and feel that he added to premium, premium stuff. And I think with Brecht and with a number of the 2024 college pitchers, the big question is, the usability, the control, the pitchability, the command overall. There are a lot of reliever-ish prospects in next year's pitching class, and I think improvement in that regard in the 2024 season will be really important uh, in determining the ultimate order. But I I don't know that it's even possible for him to take a jump like that in a single offseason, just given what he's shown. I, I do think there are some positive indicators. He was a former two sport guy he's a football player so maybe you could say he's got the athleticism and he's new enough to the mound that he can make big jumps but you're gonna need to see a pretty sizable jump to get to that so i would probably just avoid uh a paul Skeens comparison with him or really any other pitcher in the class next year yeah the yeah the athleticism seems like it would be something and then he he had been a two sport player playing mm -hmm. football at iowa now it sounds like just gonna be baseball curious how much that is a factor for him um stuff wise how how would he compare to skeins or or maybe somebody like jacob mizierowski hmm. with the brewers who has 
Yeah, Mizurowski seems much better. Outstanding stuff, like different body type. Mizurowski's like six seven, ton of extension, weighs like 190 pounds, but um, fastball up to 102, like really difficult angle with a couple of big, big swing and miss breaking balls. Not much of a change up with control that took a step forward this year, but but still has a, a ways to go. Yeah, I think it's closer to Mizurowski than Paul Skeens. I mean, Brecht, his, his stuff is great. You could argue that it's 270s. I mean, he's averaged 97.5 on his fastball. He's been up to 101. His slider just makes hitters look silly, even if he's not putting it over the plate. Uh, it had a whiff rate over 50% last spring. So no one's questioning this stuff. It's just the, the release point is really erratic um, and just the feel overall. I mean, those walk rates are really, really high. Uh, and a massive question mark. So he, he's going to need to address that. So Mizurowski is a much better comparison, I think, for a player like him than Paul Skeens. All right. Simon on Twitter asks, how much of a grain of salt should we take from Charlie Paglierini's performance in the Mac ball as he settles into low minors? So Charlie Paglierini was a senior sign for the Mariners this year, 19th rounder. Um, I think he signed for a hundred thousand dollars. He was coming off the best career or the best season of his career with Fairfield in the Mac. He hit 399, 528, 851 with 24 homers. Uh, he was also a standout on the Mariners draft report card. He put up pretty loud exit velocity data in his pro debut. Um, it was a 92.6 mile per hour average exit velocity, pretty strong 90th percentile mark as well. Um, he had 16 games in rookie ball, homered four times, hit 263, 344, 561. Um, that's all really good. I think it should be taken with a pretty sizable grain of salt. Um, his offensive numbers throughout his college career were not particularly close to 2022 when we saw just, or, or excuse me, to 2023, his 2023 season. Uh, we had a huge spike in home runs in college baseball. He went from 13 in 2022 to 24 um, in 2023 as a 22-year-old. So I think just the age factor, um, the significant contact questions that I would have with with Pagliarini and the fact that he was a 22-year-old in rookie ball putting up those numbers, like he's going to need to do what he did in a very small sample at much higher levels before you can feel too convicted. So I think it's just maybe an encouraging data point for a late-round player and you need to wait and see what he does at the next level um all indications are that he's not going to be a below average hitter at the next level just given his contact rates um but if he keeps doing it i mean you start to get more convicted as he moves up the minor league ladder and gets a bigger sample but if you're like if you're really excited about pagliarini uh based on 16 games in pro ball i think maybe you want to pump the brakes just a little bit um and see what he, he does over a, a larger sample and against more age-appropriate competition but the power is real would it be a sizable grain of salt or would it be a isn't the isn't the point of the idiom that it, it's a small grain of salt that you're taking it with the size of the you would the, 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 the bigger the, the grain of the, the bigger the grain of salt the more skeptical you should be right take no, this the, with a grain of salt yeah, because the size, the, the grain of salt is a small item. You're supposed to, you're, you're giving it small significance. No, mm, I'm, I'm not sure. I, I, I might be mixed up here, but I thought, I thought the salt, I thought the, the size of the salt was supposed to be 
I'm clearly mixed up here. Either way, I would be skeptical. <laughs> Let's be clear. I would be skeptical of Pagliarini for now. I'm not sure either. I guess, Outside you know, of any mixed take, metaphors. Take what I'm saying with a grain <laughs> with of salt. The, with a huge yeah. grain of salt. Yeah. I mean, I, you know, I think he's a, you know, a fine player to take a senior sign flyer on in the 19th round. Yeah, absolutely. See, uh, you know, you're not getting the, the five-tool polished player <laughs> at uh, – <laughs> At that point, you're taking mm-hmm. a chance on a guy who does, you know, one or maybe two things really well, which he hits the ball really hard, and then yep. hoping the uh, the rest of it comes together. Yeah, it, it's a 38% contact rate or miss rate, excuse me. So that would be a concern. Um, yeah, but yeah, just be skeptical on that one for now. Um, all right, our last question here from Dynasty Junkie on Twitter. He says on his podcast, Jeff mentioned how Victor Scott had an absurd amount of base hits versus left-handed pitchers. At this point in his development, is it possible that this is problematic as it's not likely to be something that continues at the higher levels? Thanks, guys. Love listening. Uh, we appreciate you listening, and we appreciate your question. And I also like the crossover between our podcast and Jeff uh, talking about Victor Scott. I know Jeff is probably the Victor Scott expert as someone who covers the Cardinals system. Um, but this is a nice question well, the, to— The question was about hits against lefties or— Amount of bunt base hits versus lefties because— uh. So that I know in the sense. past, yeah, yeah. I'm not concerned if he hits well. I was like, why I, would that be? I don't want to read too much in this question, but I know there had been some talk about Scott's lack of power versus left-handed pitchers. In general, all of his home runs came against right-handed pitchers in the regular season. And then I think he homered twice maybe against lefties in like within a week. Um, so that was kind of encouraging for some people who had been following that. Uh, but I'm curious what you think about this. And this question also is a nice way to end the podcast because it ties us back to Victor, Victor Scott who led the minors in stolen bases and kind of closed the loop on our, our steals conversation. Yeah, maybe we should have mentioned the guy who stole 94 stolen hey, bases. We did, we did mention here. him. We did mention him. <laughs> we did? All right. Maybe yeah, we did. A little more. Don't worry. All right. Maybe more in depth, but we yeah. can go in depth on him here. <laughs> um, yeah, I mean, like we said, maybe it's certainly in the mix for fastest player mm. in the in baseball uh 80 runner yeah 94 steals and had a good year this year i think the other it's it seems like there's been pretty good reviews on him just overall from Mm -hmm. scouts this year which is encouraging to hear i mean the profile is an interesting one because you have center fielder who has top of the scale speed should translate to good defense at a premium position. Um, I, I am a little yeah, concerned, I think. It was just about the overall lack of impact and how that is going to translate against better pitching. But, I mean, he did get to double A and hit well this year, and a lot of the feedback has been – pretty good like certainly arrow up from where it was coming into the season like I, I think he's somebody who um, you know will probably have uh, you know ranked higher on our upcoming offseason list than where we had him during the season because the feedback on him has been pretty good yeah I, I feel like Victor Scott could wind up being a lot closer to like Enrique Bradfield than maybe people recognize and to say that for a player who was selected in the fifth round versus a first round pick uh, is pretty good for the Cardinals I would say 
it looks like he did have 15 bunt hits against left-handed pitchers this year if my splits are right and and I would say I'm not too concerned about that fact his overall splits against lefties this year aren't crazy concerning for me I think you need a larger sample of like poor performance to get more concerned he did get on base at basically the same clip against righties versus lefties and I also feel like he's maybe one of the rare players who bunting is just going to be a real tool in the toolbox for him I don't know why if he's proven to be a successful bunter it would just all of a sudden become um, irrelevant at the major league level like admittedly in the major leagues the infielders are going to be better Um, but I do think it's interesting that if he's bunting more against left-handed pitchers he also bunts a lot to the first base side. And I feel like that's more challenging uh, for a left-handed pitcher than a right-handed pitcher. Like in some cases, depending on how you finish in your delivery, you're turning around twice before you can make the play completely. Like you might turn around the infield to go get the ball in the first place. And then once you get there, because you're left-handed, you also have to make a pivot around the ball while fielding. And for a player who's a 70 or 80 grade runner, like that's a lot of movement that you have to do in a very short period of time. So I don't hate it. And I'm typically more along the anti-bunt spectrum of anyone in our office. But I think for Scott, he's got the contact ability, speed, and tool set to just make that a more reliable part of his game potentially. And draw Um, in the infield too. Yeah, exactly. So I, I think in a lot of situations, even if he's just trying to get on himself, like it could be a real tool. I'm not too concerned. Um, and I think it it's a lot of fun to watch. Like If you guys haven't seen him, uh, he's pretty good at this. Uh, so, yeah, but I, I am curious if you think like bunting versus left-handed pitchers in general is an interesting strategy move because you're required to do a lot more as a left-handed pitcher fielding that play. And he seems to specifically try and bunt down the first baseline. Uh, I don't know if, if it's in, intentional or it's just easier for him to bunt that way um, overall. But Or if it's indicative of lack of comfort against left-handed pitching potentially too. I, I mean specifically bunting towards the first baseline as opposed oh, to bunting gotcha. down the third baseline. But yeah, you're, that's a good point as well. Yeah, because when I, when I look at his left left right splits and it's tough to take away a ton from these mm. even in these sample sizes so in 115 plate appearances uh, i'm looking at baseball reference for the splits but um he had two extra base hits this year a double and a triple <laughs> uh so 324 which is good 324 372 353 so uh that's the the two extra base hits, the 29 isolated power definitely uh, jumps out. And like, 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 you know, like you're pointing out a lot of that is the, the bunt hits coming into play there. You know, you know it's an unusual split mm. for him here. Yeah. So versus uh, left-handed pitchers, he got hit by a pitch one time and versus righties, he got hit 14 times. So, I don't know what he's, I don't know what he's doing to these uh, right-handed pitchers. Well, he's facing more righties, but I wonder how aggressive, like if you do it on a per plate appearance basis, what that comes to, because it, I mean, it makes sense to me that he's hit more from right-handed pitchers because you're just facing more of those in general. But yeah, it's fourteen more to one is pretty, but not fourteen to one is pretty crazy. Yeah, and he's a left-handed hitter. It's not like he's got two different stances i don't yeah. think for, for <laughs> like setting up setting up real close versus 
righties versus lefties. Maybe he is. I don't know. It's less than a percent of the time he's hit by pitch uh, from lefties. And then if you do it by righties, it's 2.8%. So uh, I don't think it's, I don't think it's too crazy, but maybe it is. <laughs> I don't know. It's not like anything meaningful. I just <laughs> thought it was funny. <laughs> yeah, I think that's, that's it. I guess closing, closing thoughts on this comment is I'm not super concerned about them on a bunt base hits. Um, I think the questions about, like impact versus lefties is maybe more, I, I guess your question is kind of getting to that. Um, but I just don't think that Victor Scott is going to be this power hitter. So uh, as long as he's getting on base and hitting for average, um, I won't complain too much about his specific like ready lefty splits. Um, but I'll let you close it, Ben. No, I think that's fair. Cool. All right. Well, that's all we had for today. Um, anything you want to plug or mention before we get out of here? Uh, we've got our, we've got top tens coming soon uh, i know we're working on those right now so um not not 100 percent sure when exactly we will end up releasing those but uh, i know we've got uh, national league top 10 lists that should be rolling out for ba subscribers in the in the near future nice yeah i'll leave it at that the top 10s are a, a nice piece to kind of end on but um thank you guys for listening to the podcast thanks for supporting ba in general if you guys have if you haven't maybe consider a subscription uh to get access to all those top 10s all that new information um but yeah we just appreciate you guys hanging out with us um talking some baseball so for ben i'm carlos we'll see you guys next time <laughs>